probably fed a lot of these people after midnight. Relax now, damn it. It's not really the modus operandi of your average ghoul. There's no glamour in barcodes. Rumours line up right now. <laughs> Historical sitcom man. Hello, I'm Tim Worthington and welcome to another collection of highlights from Lots Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about some of the things that they remember that nobody else ever seems to. Right now, I'm looking at a copy of Welcome to Camberwick Green, Music for Pleasure 1966, based on the BBC Television Watcher's Mother series, and, as those of you who own my anthology book, The Camberwick Green Procrastination Society, will know, the cover of that was, well, based on this. The album's got two original stories featuring characters from Camberwick Green, and the sleeve notes make it clear that the first side is one featuring Peter Hazel, the postman, but the second one, they invite the children listening to guess who it's going to feature, I'm kind of wondering how many of them will have avoided listening to it, just in case it was The Clown. As regular listeners to Looks Unfamiliar would be all too aware, there used to be a lot of terrifying clowns around on television back in those days. But when author, restaurant critic and broadcaster Grace Dent appeared on the show, she wanted to talk about a clown that, well, she didn't even know what he was doing on their television. One of the reasons that I wanted to be on this wonderful podcast, apart from the fact that it is my favourite podcast, I've told you that several times, (laughs) and I mean it, but there's been this thing that has like kind of made me fearful of television screens all of my life. Now, this goes back to me being a very little girl. And when I was a little girl, one of my favourite things to do in the world was sit up a little bit later than I was meant to sit in the living room with my dad. And we would watch anything, right? Back in the days where you just sit watching telly all night and we loved Kenny Everett and we loved Only When I Laugh. This is how I am how I am because he let me watch Monty Python, he let me watch anything I wanted. But there was a part where, and I've never known what it was, where the screen used to go completely black and then a clown used to come out from the side. Now I must have been four or five years old but it frightened me so much that I remember tearing off upstairs to bed and it's scared me ever since and I've tried to find again and again what comedy show was this I've got a tiny inkling it was something to do with Monty Python it could have been Spike Milligan because that's also very surreal but what this has led me to I mean we're talking about for 40 (laughs) 44 years it's that I mean, I love television and I've written about it for years, but I'm still slightly terrified of blank screens, right? Because I think that one of my biggest fears is that something's in the television. Now, whatever this clown was, and I'm not even that scared of clowns. I'm scared of something being in the television. So, you know, that kind of, you know, Halloween, the Halloween three, I think it is, it's silver shamrock. The idea that there's kind of something kind of a subliminal thing talking to you or the interruption on the Chicago television channel where that Max Headroom man suddenly appeared. These things, Tim, for the love of bejesus, they scare the life out of me. Now, you know, poltergeist doesn't really get me so much, but it's things where people are genuinely kind of trying to scare you. And it's that feeling that you get with the wonderful inside number nine Halloween thing where suddenly it's kind of ghosts in the machine, you know? So now that I've talked myself into a slight frenzy, (laughs) do you know what this is? I know absolutely what this is. It's the end of a series three episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus. 
it's a continuation that they do the All England Summarised Proust contest in it with the you know the the gong saying start again. Yes. And it's at the end they say start again and the silence and this clown comes in and waves <gasps> and disappears. I think it does it. It twice. does it twice. And nobody can work out who is playing the clown. It's impossible to tell because they're so heavily made up. Genuinely, everyone I know finds it terrifying. In fact, during my brief legal career, I became friends with somebody purely on the basis that he mentioned having been terrified by it when he saw it. Oh my gosh. Tim, thank you. Oh my gosh. I feel as if like, I didn't think that anybody else again was out there that remembered that. It's so eerie. So hang on, we don't know who's actually... Is it one of the Monty Python team? Do We we don't know. Nobody's sure. Nobody can work out because it's on a weird kind of... It's not quite directly on camera either. It's like it's been fed in from another source. Yes. It looks kind of ghostly. Yes. Like blurry and hazily edged. Oh, and it, yes. It's not clear who it is. It doesn't really look like any of them. But sometimes they didn't look like any of them when they had, you know, ridiculous get-up on. So that makes it even <laughs> creepier, really. It is almost like somebody had just barged it. Because that was the thing about exactly what you're saying. Python in particular, the TV show, it's why I like it more than the films or something, was it was poking at the edges of this box yes. in the corner of the room, trying to show you almost almost that they could come out of it. And it's funny that, you know, you mentioned clowns in relation to it because the two things, as I've said many times on here, that really, really freaked me out as a child were Tess Cardiff yes. with the girl and the clown playing noughts yeah. and crosses and the clown at the start and end of Camberwick yes. Green because both of them, the girl and the clown were on when there was nothing on television. And it was, why is that there? Why aren't there programmes? Why aren't people doing something that makes sense? And why that, And with though? the clown, it was that he stirred forwards just before there were no programmes in the afternoon. Like he was looking yes. at you directly. And then nothing, blackness, a void, which another clown might lean into and wave. <laughs> I mean, I remember for years afterwards, my dad kind of winding me up about it and laughing, going, oh, you're scared that clown's going to turn up again. You know? <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. I'm not scared of clowns, though. That's the thing when I don't have that kind of guttural thing that some people have. You know, if I see a clown in the street, I don't have to go and hide in the car. <laughs> I just... But it, 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 don't hide in a clown not, car. That... <laughs> with a wonky crankshaft holding a bucket of glitter. <laughs> this just... Well, I mean, it, it's, it's that idea that it's something in the television. It's funny, when you were talking about Python... There's a bit at the end of the Holy Grail where suddenly it just finishes because the police turn up, don't they? And that, I remember again, we got that out in VHS and it must have been about 85, 6. And I was older then, but that really freaked me out. It's this idea, and you've said this before, that in the olden days, when you had things on VHS and they just finished it was often very late at night and you were just sitting mm. in a living room and then it just finished and the television was finished. And it often left you in a really strange mindset. I mean, now, I don't think we get that feeling. You know, you can watch the most horrible, bloody, awful thing on Sky and then quickly switch over, you know? So you're, you're not left with that kind of feeling of, of upset for a long time. But yeah, that, that's all gone. Yeah, I think you're right about that, because I think, I mean, one of the reasons, I mean, I could go on all night about the whole video nasties thing, which I find the whole phenomenon yes. interesting, not the actual films themselves, but I think they had a much greater impact because people watched them, and then by the time they finished watching them, there was nothing on TV. Yes, yeah. There was just almost, there was like a void. 
void, almost a silence, really. Mm. There wasn't even much radio after a certain point yeah. of night at one time. Yeah, and then you were kind of just left to kind of take yourself upstairs to your bedroom where there was like, you know, the wallpaper was cream wood chip. <laughs> your, your MFI, coffee, you know, side table and sit there being absolutely terrified. Thank you for telling me about the clown. And I almost want to go and look at YouTube but there's I can't I almost there's a couple of things I can't look at on YouTube even though I really want to and I'm sure that's one of them and the other one is do you remember that pot noodle advert in the 90s where it was a guy that looked like an American president and they played Ace of Spades oh well it was a bit like the U2 Zoo TV thing yeah it's like almost a rip-off of that yeah and the guy was suddenly kind of turn upon the TV going intense and looking straight <laughs> at you. And I remember coming home one night when I was at university and I think I was slightly high on life, shall we say, and worse for wear. And I, I sat down and that was on. And honestly, it's again, scared the love out of me. And I, I still to this day can't look. But this is the power of telly and this is why we love it. Well, that's before I come back onto the Max Headroom Broadcast Intrusion. You did also mention the Frazzles advert that frightened you. You've not been able to identify <laughs> Right. I, I had to look for this. I couldn't find anything of it anywhere, not even people sort of half remembering it. So this is a real obscurity. I think that this may be one of my earliest possible memories because we were living in Aldershot. My dad was in the army and we were living in Aldershot and I must have been three two or three and it would have been London weekend television maybe or Thames telly and they played it was a Frazzles advert with a man in a, a fox's outfit and it was so he was a big fox just and, and it was I mean for, for its time and for the fact that I was very tiny he just seemed like a big actual fox sitting in a chair and he's eating the frazzles you know the point of the advert is that like he just thinks that they're bacon you know because they're so bacony and I remember screaming at this screaming the house down at this advert and being round the back of the telly trying to find where you know what I mean where the fox was <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert, he wasn't there. <laughs> well, that is really like an advert that, I mean, I was a bit too old to be bothered by it when it was on, but it always bewildered me was there was a Baco foil one where I won't sing it, but it had kind of two operatic blokes singing to the tune of La Donna Immobile. Okay. One was a kind of, you know, that they had those kind of Renaissance beards, yes. you know, like actors having old things. <laughs> yeah. And one was a chef and one had some feathers on. The one with the feathers on said, why go and wrap up me in Baco foil just for tea? <laughs> and the chef said, oh, turkey, can't you see? It makes you so tasty. How there is nothing finer than stuffing? To which the turkey replied, yes, I agree. Now Baco foil me. Oh. And the voiceover said, Baco foil, even a turkey can find out its uses. And it was, oh. That would not be allowed now. There's no trace of it online. But, no. you know, the, the whole tenor of it was, you know, this food is happy to be eaten by you. you know, and, and we've given it a nice jolly opera context to reinforce that. I've literally, do, I will not watch anything with anthropomorphised animals in it. I just won't do it. And my friends go, Grace Paddington is the greatest movie and Paddington 2 is even better and I'm like does it contain any points where Paddington is lost <laughs> and they're like it's Paddington well, course, he's lost for the whole it's Paddington <laughs> and I'm like look I watched the first one and those people he was living with were not very nice and it really upset <laughs> me so yeah there's something I've never been able to quite deal with since then 
Other than that, I'm quite normal. But speaking of things really messing with the idea that, you know, television was a nice, safe, fictional universe, mm. we have to talk about the Max Headroom broadcast intrusion <sighs> because it is something that recently, I mean, I know you retweeted this, was I tweeted something about it, about how it's my favourite unsolved crime of all time because I love the fact that whoever did it, did it when it just wasn't possible to do things like that, yes. you know, from your bedroom and got away with it. All this, They will never be caught. And I'm sure they are, whoever did it, it's the sort of person who will be kind of getting involved in online debates about it, throwing misinformation into the mix, and they are loving it. But it's so, it's terrifying. It really is. I am obsessed with that incident, and I kind of fill my boots with reading about it. And I read and read and then I think, right, no more. And then about three months later, I'll just fall down a rabbit hole again at any given point. It's endlessly fascinating. It's the fact that it's a cold case and you can't really get any further. And then someone will say, oh, I heard in a pub that somebody said that they were going to do something big on that night. And then everyone goes that way looking at it. And then it turns out the person's either died or is just, you know, just joking. It's the fact that the person who did this chose to do something so terrifying you know to be kind of you know turning his i'm assuming it's a him turning his, turning his bottom to the camera spanking his bum there is a woman there though during it isn't yes, there yeah, there's a woman yeah, you see a hand, don't you yeah i'm sure anybody that's listening to this has watched it but i could just watch that again and again and again and it's just like i almost don't want to know because, you mm. know, if it suddenly came out, it's like the fear of it. I've grown fond of the fear. <laughs> you know, those bits in the young ones used to freak me out really badly. You know, the thing of the frog jumping. Yeah, and the carry-on cowboy closing caption, yes. which just suddenly appears from nowhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, again, messed with my head. It really, it's kind of like, why? Why have you done? It's not just a subliminal thing where you're a bit like, oh, hang on, I think I saw something. It's the fact that when you sat with the VHS recorder and pressed pause and you realised you were right, it was the sheer surrealness of it. Is that a word? Yeah. The surreal nature of it, you know, and it's just the fact there was no answers. They just did it mm. because they could. And that is one of the scariest things. Oh, God, see, now we're going into the extra young one, the extra housemate. Again, I don't want to know the truth that it was just, it was just kind of filling the scene. I like to think that that is a really spooky thing. It's an extra thing. It's like, he's again, the ghosts are in the machine and, you know, that things are a bit more subversive and scarier than anyone's worked out until I worked it out. Sometimes, though, weird and creepy television was actually right out there hiding in plain sight in the television schedules. And when actress, singer, writer and 1980s pop culture geek Deborah Tracy appeared on the show, she wanted to talk about a programme that she didn't quite remember with her usual levels of enthusiasm. 5 to 11 was a real curiosity. It was broadcast on BBC One at 5 to 11 in the morning. I suppose it was a televisual version of thought for the day. And it would have, you know, an actor or a theologian or poet or someone like that reading a piece of poetry or, you know, sort of sharing sharing musings. It was supposed to be tranquil, but I just, as a child, I just found it unbearably creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I found it really, I just found it very, very, I, f 
found it quite creepy. And it, it, it's just so peculiar. Everything about it was peculiar. I mean, it was just gone at 10.55 in the morning. Just I can't quite remember or not whether I don't think it would come on during the school holidays. So, again, I'm just wondering, it probably maybe the reason why I experienced this programme was because I was off sick. So, again, that kind of adds to the creepiness of it, because if you're not feeling well and rather, you know, you're just kind of watching TV at this random time of day. Just such a strange show. I mean, this is how I got to be here talking to you, Tim, because it's one of those things you kind of squirrel away in the back of your consciousness. And then you happened to, you were tweeting about obscure British telly, which you do brilliantly. But you mentioned Five to Eleven and generally something just clicks. And it's like, I suppose it's like regression therapy, but obviously without being sinister or maybe a bit sinister, I don't know. But it was like regression therapy. I was like, oh my gosh, I remember that. And yeah, I mean, literally, I just kind of went down this wormhole of this is something that, oh wow, what a weird little show that was. Five minutes a day, like Jack and Nori, but without any narrative or plot or, or entertainment value. <laughs> oh, they might bring back five to eleven, and then I'll never ever be asked on if I say. Yeah, it was just such a creepy little curiosity. I'm so glad that you remember it as well. Well, I do. And you're not alone because I should say that not too long ago, previous guest Ray Earl sent me a message saying, I've had this theme stuck in my head all day. It's driving me insane. I don't know what it is. And I played the sound file of a singing it. It was do, 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 do. And yes, that's five to 11. But I can answer, yes, it was on in the holidays. But the difference was, I mean, normally when it was on, it would be somebody like Emma Thompson or Philip Maddock or Annette Crosby, you know, reading a thing where they go, may I have a word, God, about the waste we make or something like that. But they had school kids in the school holidays. Well, this is it. And the theme tune itself, I found, again, I found quite mournful. Like the Hardwick House theme tune, absolute bop. Five to 11, it's just like, that's just to make you contemplate your own mortality. Just, And I think that era is what I think during the 1980s, I've often spoken on this, that the 1980s was quite a scary decade anyway for kids. So yeah, that mournful theme tune, that was part of the experience. And just the aesthetic as well. I mean, again, TV studio aesthetic, especially if you're kind of making lower budget telly, wasn't great. It was not the golden age of sort of TV backdrop design but it was all lots of sort of muted beiges and greys and like floral arrangements with loads of baby's breath which again kind of adds to the funeral home kind of vibe and it is very much like waking up from a head injury or something and I don't say that lightly Having had it, woken up from head injuries or waking up from anaesthetic or, you know, anaesthesia, it's, it's, it's like, you know, that slightly eerie feeling like, like, what's going on? Why are you talking to me like this? You know, the people present that, hello. You know, and as you say, like, yes, let's talk to God about, you know, what we're doing to the world. And sometimes there'd be illustrations as well. But again, not like Jack and Laurie, just like, oh, I don't, I don't know. It's even just thinking about it now, I'm quite creeped out about it. But again, going back to that, I don't want to slate it too much because I think now, actually now as an actor, and again, actors having had this really rough 18 months. So, you know, we're all, av- we're available. We're aggressively available you know five to eleven was on telly now i would be asking my agent to like like actually harass them to get me on there because it's an actor's dream i imagine that you would probably if you were shooting the whole week you know they would get the same actor to do the whole week of reflections and it is just you know fixed camera and just you talking literally that is a thespian's dream put your best rsc voice on and literally just <laughs> just speak poetry at the nation you know regardless of who is watching 
that sounds like a pretty neat deal. I'd quite like that. Well, I think you're right. It did have that kind of dislocated ambience. And I think the reason for that is, I mean, do you remember the title graphics or not? Because I couldn't find them online. But it had sort of, it was like a PowerPoint presentation of things like, yes, you know, flowers it. and <laughs> an Italian church and a gorilla for some reason. You know, that's really relaxing, isn't it? It's very 80s, this. It was a whole era of things like, you know, you get albums with things like Pampite Moods or Pampite yes, Carpenters. Or they never did. I wanted to do Pan Weller, which is Paul Weller songs on the Pampite. <laughs> it's that whole thing of you know so 80s like here's how you relax it's being sold to you yes. and you like it and you get on with it it wasn't like now where you can get apps for guided meditations on it was like <laughs> you know, very that's the right thing here's the answer to your problems now get back to work and 5 to 11 was kind of part of that really well yeah I think so I think so you know you, you could buy these curiously overpriced cassettes box sets which had things like you know dolphins wailing and rain forest sounds and things like that i mean you know I, I, it must have been that but again it was very much kind of relax now damn it you know it's <laughs> as opposed to something that was very sort of nurturing or focusing on mental health and like i said it's incredible the things that kind of are meant to be you know kind of relaxing or meant to be sort of enriching but the whole thing was just really really creepy that's my overwhelming memory of it yeah and that theme tune yeah i haven't heard that for a long time i couldn't find it. i'm glad that you found the theme tune. i'll look forward to uh having well no i don't look forward to listening to that but <laughs> Yeah, it'll take me back. But I just remember thinking it was so mournful. Yeah, and the title sequence and just everything about it. It was just such a curious five minutes. Well, the other thing about it was that when it was on in the school holidays, I mean, where you had the weird thing of, you know, you'd have the early broom couple presenters like Andy Crane introducing yeah. it because it was the end of the children's programmes in the morning. It was like a full stop to it. So on the other side of it, you got open air, which is where, you know, people were phoned up saying, I was disgusted that ITV broadcast hail and pace microwaving the spitting image puppet of David Steele. <laughs> And Clive James <laughs> laughed at it. it. It was that sort of thing. And it was kind of, you know, you'd had your... Nobody wanted Lassie, but you'd had that. You'd had Battle of the Planets, the Monkeys. But first this, the magazine show that nobody remembers. And it was kind of, time's up, off you go. This is adult's time now. And here's a gorilla to scare you off. Oh, right. Well, you know what? That puts things in perspective. Oh, my gosh. Like, literally, you saved money on me getting a therapist. Obviously, that was maybe disappointed <laughs> that the children's programs had ended. And then you sort of still watching you know oh, that's it then oh it's great <laughs> well after you've been told there was no more television for you and it was time to literally turn off your television set and go and do something less boring instead there was really no other option but to play with whatever toys were lying around and book reviewer joanne shepherd possibly slightly unbalanced by 5 to 11 enjoyed a good old scrap with some of hers matchbox fighting furies were kind of i suppose action figures of a sort so they were plastic figures aimed very much at boys i think but the ones we had were actually my brothers and I used to play with them. They were kind of action figures. The ones we had were pirates. I think they were probably all pirates, but the ones we had were pirates. But they were quite, they were very sort of detailed. They had clothes that you could take on and off. So you could dress and undress them and they had little accessories with them. And they also had a little kind of button around, I suppose it was sort of on their sort of rib cage that if you pressed, they would start um, sort of thrashing their arms about wildly. <laughs> Which was so, so you were essentially, you were supposed to be able to have a fight with two of them so you would sort of stand them opposite each other and kind of squeeze this button on their side and they would I mean they were supposed to punch each other or like sort of slash each other with swords but what actually happened was that they would just kind of flap their arms about in a really kind of 
slightly panicked camp kind of way, like a couple of girls having a fight in a nightclub. It was very, it was really... They should reboot really not... them with that as the theme. Yeah, they completely should. They completely should. They should have one holding a, a stiletto shoe that she's just taken off to clout someone with instead of a cutlass. The two that we had, and I've never seen any others, so I only know the two that we had. One of them was a sort of a peg-legged pirate who, he's, he had, it looks a bit like Burt Reynolds. He had a kind of suspiciously modern hair and moustache but also a peg leg hidden inside his peg leg and this is where the sort of the this was the kind of the good thing about them is that they were quite detailed hidden inside his peg leg was like a little treasure map so you could unscrew his peg leg and there was a tiny little curled up piece of paper hidden inside it that was his treasure map so there was him and the other one was the other one in retrospect might have been a bit racist I was that he had a kind of a sort of East Asian look to him shall we say and he was completely bald except for a, a sort of a kind of a top knot ponytail that was sort of came right from the middle of the top of his head and he was kind of shirtless and quite like had a quite an angry expression and was quite frightening I think he had a hook hand I think that was it. he'd been maimed in that way so because you can't have a pirate that's had nothing amputated can you so <laughs> he had a missing hand I think he had a hook hand and the other one had a peg leg and they were quite formidable and yeah but you couldn't really do anything with them except have really kind of strange frantic flappy armed fights with them well there do seem to have been other varieties of them I mean surprisingly for the 70s there were no Nazis but there were different oh. kinds of historical soldiers there were kung fu variants which you know is a very 70s thing but also ghosts oh now, I'd have what you will say be in the fighting fury situation <laughs> oh no my hook arm has gone right through it <laughs> See, I, I'm gutted that I never had any ghost ones. That would have been my dream toy when I was a child. <laughs> like a Fighting Furies ghost. But as you say, ghosts not really known for fisticuffs, are they? No. <laughs> not, not really known for brawling. That's not really the sort of... It's not really the modus operandi of your average ghoul, is it? And also, they must have been armed with a ball and chain. Because, you know, there is that thing about... Ghosts always had that kind of old-fashioned gear on. Yeah, or a head, a removable head that tucked under the arm, yeah. I'd like to imagine. Like they stopped making them in the 17th century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no modern ghosts. <laughs> There's no modern ghosts, but also there are no really old ghosts. So you never get like a ghost of a Neolithic tribesman, do you? It's always, it's kind of, I would say, maybe Roman centurion upwards, I would say, for ghosts. But I wonder if there were other varieties of them, because again, that was quite a 70s kids entertainment thing, mainly in comics for boys and so on, where you would have combatants and throughout history matched against each other. Not ghosts normally, but, you know, that <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Of, I don't know, it'd be in the Hotspur or something. There'd be some story where somehow somebody had gone to this big arena where they'd been plucked from history to fight against, say, an Egyptian with a big headset on and carrying a hod or something. <laughs> Yeah, it does kind of tap into that. I also remember pirates in the 70s were kind of much better than pirates now as well, I think. I, like To me, a pirate is not Johnny Depp in some eyeliner. It's Robert Newton sort of rolling his eyes a lot and having a peg leg and talking in a really strong West Country accent. That's a proper pirate. I don't want glamorous pirates. I want them to be really properly piratey, like someone that would actually have been on the high seas in the late 1700s. That's what I want a pirate to look like and these were that kind of pirate I would say apart from the fact that one of them did look a bit like Burt Reynolds they were that kind of pirate and the the foreign pirate with the hook hand he was very much of the kind of if you saw a film involving pirates 
from that sort of time, from the kind of, I suppose, from the sort of 50s, 50s, 60s, you would often have a kind of exotic pirate who would be pitted against your hero pirate, who would be maybe sort of Moroccan, he'd be sort of a Moor, or he would be Siamese or from some other country that doesn't exist anymore. And it would normally have big gold earrings and a curved sword to distinguish him from the straight sword of your British pirates. Well, I was about to ask when you think pirates jumped the shark, but most of them look like they didn't very successfully jump a shark and lost an arm on the way. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened to them. It's fascinating now about all these companies. Like, I mean, we've had Matchbox Toys chosen on here before that, you know, there were all these usually British-based companies that made all kinds of toys that were really solid idea, a really good product line, quite varied as well. They were a household name for years and years and then they just don't seem to have been able to cope when, you know, in the 80s when the whole powerhouse rolled out of, I mean, well, starting with things like Masters of the Universe. I think Star Wars, by accident, probably started it, but you'd have the weight of, you know, a TV series and films and all kinds of cross-media promotion behind these toys, which sometimes even interacted with the other iterations in some way, and then you'd have poor old, you know, Fighting Furies going, we're still over here. It's our cheaply made cartoon. Yeah, for me, it was a bit of a sad day when cartoons started to be made pretty much to promote a toy line rather than the other way around, I guess. The other thing, I think, with things like Fighting Furies is, like, we only had the two and the pirates, but now I know that there were ghosts and stuff as well. It's that sort of collectible element, isn't it? I like the idea of there being lots of different versions of a thing. That was always something that appealed to me a lot when I was a child. Lots of iterations on essentially the same thing, but sort of varied enough to be interesting. Like, you know, I could happily have, although we only had the two, I could happily have had hundreds of Fighting Furies like lined up on a shelf. I thought they were brilliant. I loved them at the time. Although the sort of the small parts, like the map and the hook and the things that sort of, and their clothes were very easily lost, I have to say. They were the sort of toy that kind of, by the time I was sort of playing with them, because they were originally my brothers, by the time I was playing with them, I think there were some bits missing. I mean, other than the leg and the hand, which were meant to be missing. There were some accessories missing and things, I think. But yeah, I thought they were great. And I'm inexplicably not still going. Yoga teacher Lucy Pope, on the other hand, enjoyed doing battle with something a little more technologically advanced. So it was a games console where it did come with a few cards which had barcodes on it and you and your opponent would choose one each and scan it and then the machine read the barcode and depending on what it read your battler would have a certain amount of power and then on the screen you would see the two of them have a fight and it became massive because I think it was in China there had been a packet of pasta or noodles or something which sold out countrywide because people had discovered that this barcode was like the most super powerful battler ever. So the idea of it was that you, you know, you'd sort of cut barcodes off your household product and maybe you would discover an amazing, fantastic battler. But tragically, in reality, that wasn't the case. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking into it earlier, and apparently, like you say, it did come with its own barcodes for power-ups and monsters, apparently, but it did suggest prominently that you went and looked for other barcodes that worked with it. Now, immediately coming to mind, there's things like, that's not consulting any of the retailers that, you know, were reliant on barcode data for scanning how much of their stuff was sold. It's a green light, really, you know, looking from an adult point of view, for kids to run riot around supermarkets, misbehave stealing stuff that has valuable barcodes on that they couldn't afford and I didn't find anything about any controversy about it but I imagine there probably was. I don't remember any I, I just remember I got sick of it very quickly because nothing 
that we've put through ever worked or did anything. The only barcodes that worked were the ones that came with it. And thinking about it now, like if I think if that product was developed now, they would have tie-ins, wouldn't they, with all kinds of brands to ship product. Yeah, apparently they did do in Japan where it was huge. I mean, that was my uh, first so- thing on hearing about this was that the idea of a barcode battler just in general reminded me of, I mean, it's a bit difficult looking back on things like this now, but the way things like Newsround would be obsessed with stories about the latest craze in Japan where it'd be a vending machine with cans of, like, just air in them and that sort of thing. And it was always kind of, what are those crazy folks up to now? And yes. the barcode battler kind of fits that template exactly and apparently there were tie-ins with mario and zelda in japan oh, which well, you know you could buy in packs but over here you know it'd be your nothing. tesco basmati rice <laughs> yeah yeah because my dad was i wasn't allowed a games console at all and everybody else had a commodore 64 so this was like the first thing i was allowed to have and probably because my dad seemed to have an interest in it. So I remember him being quite invested in cutting things up, trying to get a barcode to work, but nothing did. But yeah, I think that would be now, I think that would be an entirely, it would be an entirely different product now. And as you say, it would lead to children running riot and stealing all sorts to get the best battlers. It's odd that it didn't really take off though, because I don't want to sound like, you know, one of those, oh, we had to make our own entertainment in those days. I mean, it's a pretty, the advanced piece of kit for the early 90s really and it's quite an imaginative idea because barcodes themselves weren't that old at that point i don't think no they weren't they weren't it was yeah it was quite new wasn't it some shops you'd go into and they'd still be tapping the price of everything into the till i remember going to the big asda in grimsby it was very exciting when they suddenly went to scanning yeah it was it was advanced for its time it's just, tragically it didn't work no it just didn't take off at all and i wonder if it was to do with the fact the game boy must have come out around the same time and you know let's be honest if people were able to get one for christmas they would have asked for that instead of barco battler really yes Yes, that was my next console. And after that, the Barco Battler was forgotten. It was definitely a novelty product. Once you realised that you couldn't find your own magic with it, there was very little point to it. And then obviously, yeah, Tetris. Who doesn't love Tetris? Apparently, it is quite a cult thing now with the kind of gentleman who will, you know, hack the original program and make their own modified versions of it. I don't know what else you could do. Does it become the QR code battler or something? But apparently there is quite a big community for it now. Oh, maybe I need to find... Because I'm sure I will still have that somewhere. Maybe I need to find these people. Maybe they're my people. It is interesting, though, how there were all these toys that... Things like the Game Boy, to mention that again, kind of changed everything in terms of... That's when it started becoming everything in one box. You didn't need individual bits of entertainment. It's like the way now. I feel like a relic for still having an MP3 player because they were superseded by phones a long time ago. But Barco Battler, there were a lot of things like that around then that did one thing that became junk very very quickly i mean one of the previous choices on this was the vtech master painter which does even less than you know your gallery does on your phone now yeah and there was the what was the plug-in thing that you plugged into your like the tennis thing i obviously that was from the 70s it was oh there were actually rival brands of them yes yeah there was the binatone one there was grandstand and there's one called like olympic or whatever but they were all almost essentially exactly the same but somehow they were rivals 
that I did not know. I thought there was just like one that you plugged into your TV and you could watch two lines hit a circle. Some of them had a gun as well where you could shoot a dot going along the screen. Ah, uh, yeah. Yes, I think I remember that one as well. But yeah, they were. There was there would just be sort of one or two games on things or the Atari where you'd have to wait hours for it to load. So I suppose the Barco Battler was the first one where it was, you know, you could instantly play. But then, yes, the Game Boy came and there was your machine that did all sorts and on such a tiny little cartridge and instantaneously. In fact, do you know what? I would be surprised if nobody had done a Barco Battler app. Because when you think about it... Well, you have to scan QR codes all the time, particularly at the moment if you're doing your lateral flow tests. You know, surely somebody must have come up with something similar, although it might be copyrighted, I don't know, but that's never stopped anyone developing an app, really. I found one. Really? Yes, Barcode Kingdom. It's got very high rating. Is it free or is it? It's 49 pence. (laughs) Obtaining units and items from barcodes. It looks a lot, I mean... It should be a lot better than Barcode Battler Sings with 35 years on, or whatever we are. 35, 25. It does look a lot better. I'll send it to you, Tim. I wonder if it combines with Pokemon Go, which is kind of, I suppose, the equivalent now. I was really obsessed with that when it first launched. I imagine I must have been quite annoying to hang out with because wherever I was, (laughs) especially if I was in a new area, I was on my phone catching Pokemon or going for battles. The tram stop near my house was a big battle spot. How did they decide where they went? I don't know. And again, I think with that, I mean, tram stops, bus stops, whatever, that's, you know, that's there. But again, businesses could perhaps have really tapped into that by making them, you know, paying to be battlegrounds. Although, do you want a gang of children and me? a middle-aged woman congregating outside your business. I don't know. I'm just wondering if also, maybe there was no glamour to barcodes at all, because it was a thing that nobody <laughs> really understood. It's not really kind of what would... I mean, it must have appealed to you because you wanted one, but it's not it kind of the first thing you think of about, you know, kids would think, oh, I'm really into barcodes. <laughs> Can't wait to scan some of them and have fights with them. It was just some lines you didn't understand. It was what you think of on Stuart Lee and Richard Herring's Fist of Fun. Do you remember those mad Magic Eye was a craze around then as well. Oh, yeah. But oh, they, yeah. they had a load of barcodes stuck together and said, it's a magic eye picture. And if you stare for it for long enough, you will see absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> but that's that's what barcodes were. They weren't, you know, aspirational in any way. No, they weren't. I've never heard people put glamour and barcode together in the same sentence before, so that's amused. I'm sure if I Mariah think... Carey had one, it'd be quite glamorous. It, well, maybe, yeah, she'd jazz it up somehow. Yeah, I suppose it was something that just, I mean, like, I've always been, a, you know, like an early adopter and any kind of gadget or new geeky thing I'm into. So I suppose it would appeal to a very yeah, specific demographic of people, you know, where there's something new. They're like, oh, what's this? Which is probably why it never took off, because, as you say, there is there's no glamour in barcodes. There just isn't. <laughs> Oh, she's probably why there's a now a sort of an underground subsection of people hacking them and being quite obsessive about it. But I'm quite interested in that. <laughs> Not for everyone. Well, when they do the... Oh, God, what's the name of a fashion house? I can't remember now. Debenhams has closed, doesn't it? I don't know if we could class Debenhams as a fashion house either, Tim. <laughs> are, you, are we thinking more like sort of a Chanel 
or a Gucci. Yeah, I was just thinking like a, a, yeah. a winter barco collection. <laughs> when they do a winter yeah. barco collection being modelled in Paris, then you know we'll know the sunflowers arrived. But... Well, if there's any designers struggling for their next collection listening, I think we've just given them a sterling idea. I wonder if that was why Naomi Campbell slipped over on the catwalk. That time she had a barco battler and was scanning the crowd. Maybe. It would have been around Maybe that time. Did. Yes, it was nothing to do with those massive Vivian Westwood platforms. It was all about the barco battler. Well, the sort of companies that rely on barcodes would not exactly have been battling for advertising space in the programme that was very much aimed at the young writer, comedian and musician Mitch Ben, but which he had absolutely nothing resembling fond memories of whatsoever. This is a classic example of something we were talking about where something has been purged. This did not fall down the memory hole by accident. This was rolled up and shoved down the memory hole. This is a show that I cannot remember anybody mentioning since about 12 months after it was on which is knocking on for 40 years ago now. This is OTT. This was Tiz Was for grown-ups. Now, I was slightly late to the party with regards to Tiz Was anyway, because something which I was fairly sure about, but I actually know that Tiz Was started off on ATV in Birmingham and was only slowly rolled out to the regions. And I don't think we got it in Granada until it had already been on for about three or four years, which I think was exactly the right time to get it, because that was the point at which it really hit its stride, sort of 78, 79 was when it really was. Because Swap Shop began in 76, I think. Tiz Was was essentially the punk swap shop. It was, you know, Swap Shop was very aspirational. It was incredibly middle class. It was all incredibly polite. It was all about how parents like to think that their children were, whereas Tiz Was was how the kids actually were. You know, it was snotty and horrible, but it was very, very entertaining and funny and properly anarchic because I guess early morning Saturday TV, people, you know, these people were being left almost entirely to their own devices. So that and the Kenny Everett video show were the two shows on around sort of the mid late 70s where you generally got the impression that you could get taken off air at any minute because nobody was supervising these guys it was you know a genuine sense of anarchy and at some point it dawned on them that their audience consisted almost entirely of grown-ups or at least substantially of grown-ups because they had this you know freewheeling anarchic sense of humor the kids were watching it because it's saturday morning what else are you going to do the grown-ups were actually you know largely sort of i guess hung over from Friday night grown-ups were forcing themselves out of bed at half nine on a Saturday morning and then just pissing themselves at Tiswell's because it was genuinely a very, very funny show. And the decision was taken at some point, I guess, in 81. The, and this is why, you know, I've ended up... This is not a show I remember with any fondness. A, because it sucked, and B, because it did a lot of damage. It was a bad show that ruined two good things, of which more in a moment. The decision was taken among the, the Tiswell's hardcore, who were principally Chris Tarrant, John Gorman, guest Lenny Henry. Sally James refused to get involved with this rather tellingly, to do essentially adult Tiswell's on a Saturday night at about half ten till midnight. It was about 90 minutes long, I think. And this show was rebranded OTT, and it was essentially more or less what it said on the tin, except how it used to define what was written on the tin was all rather unfortunate. It was the first show that Alexis Sale ever appeared in, as far as I know. He left quite early on when I think he realised that he'd been slightly sold a bit of a lemon and that this is not really a kind of show that he wanted to be associated with. It's incredibly telling that when Alexi left, he was replaced with Bernard Manning. That kind of tells you, because here's the thing, it's... Ah, 
I suppose, like I say, like the Kenny Edwards show and like the young ones which came along about 10 months later, because this was very early 82. That sort of post-punk comedy TV, what we'd ultimately know as alternative comedy TV, had not really defined itself. All that you knew that it had to be, the only rule was that it had to be transgressive in some way. But what form that transgression was going to take had not really been defined. This is where the Tizwas guys kind of exposed themselves for being basically 70s guys. These were pre-punk guys. These were not post-punk guys. These were, these were not alternative guys. These were very, very mainstream 70s guys because it's like the first thing that they think of, how do we make this transgressive? The first thing they think of is tits and ass. It's tis was with tits and ass. And Christ, it's grim. Now, I remember watching, I can't remember how I got to see this because I would have just turned 12. So this was not for me. I think I may have got to see it on the weekends when me and my sister would stay at my grandma's. And I think my grandma would nap off to bed and leave me to watch like Hammer movies on BBC Two at one in the morning. Or I think out of sheer curiosity, I put OTT on and I thought, oh Christ, this is grim. Because none of the comedy works. It's incredibly laboured. Alexi looks like he really wants to be somewhere else. Chris Tarrant looks like he's having a good time, but really nobody else does. The audience seem like mortified and embarrassed. Like all, all the jokes get these sort of nervous spasms of apologetic laughter. And every now and again, some woman will whap at it out for no apparent reason and it's just again it's like we were talking about with that awful sex obsessed phase of late night TV in the late 90s it's not even remotely erotic there's something about the British character we can't do erotic all we can do is dirty you know it's like way like, you know there's nothing titillating about whoa you know there's nothing even actual British porn has usually got some arsehole from Chelmsford from behind the camera going whoa hey whoa like, will you will you shut up I'm trying to forget you're there and this is just oh god it's grim it's really great I mean it lasted I think about 10 weeks and then I'm amazed it lasted that long actually because shows have been taken off the list it's really really bleak but what's worse about the fact that this really genuinely bad show was on on a Saturday night is that it ruined two good shows because first of all the Tizwas regulars had all decamped to do this really dreadful tits and ass version of Tizwas so Tizwas itself which was still on on a Saturday morning got handed over to the B team so all the regulars i.e. the people who were really good at presenting Tears Was were now presenting this dreadful Benny Hill version of Tears Was whereas your actual Tears Was was presented by Sally James and a bunch of ringers and one of the ringers was Den Hegarty Den Hegarty yes <laughs> who was the bass vocalist in darts and who as a kids TV presenter made a great bass vocalist the trouble is Den Hegarty jumping ship from darts to go present tis was kind of fucked up darts because i really love darts for the uninitiated darts british american doo-wop band from late 70s early 80s who had this sort of streak of comedy running through everything they did partly because their bass vocalist was this weird shambling herman monster type freak called ten hegarty <laughs> and while he was on stage the band just couldn't help but be a little bit silly and that made darts a great fun band when Dan Hagney fucks off, he gets replaced with this incredibly cool big black American guy whose name escapes me, who has actually got a far better bass register than Dead, but he's cool and good looking, and as such, darts are not funny anymore. So, you've got this really bad TV show, OTT, which not only sucks, but it spoils two things that were good. It spoils Tiz was, and it tangentially spoils darts. So, 
almost uniquely among all the things I've ever brought up on the show, this is not something I remember with any affection whatsoever. I actually bear it quite a grievance, but I just think it, what is fascinating about it is when was the last time you ever heard OTT being brought up anywhere by anyone ever? I think the last time would have been last time there was a clip show that I might have been on, to be honest, for all I know, yeah. with people talking about bad TV because they always show. I think they were just called the balloon dancers when they were on OTT, but it was the you know, about the parties show. thing, the greatest show yeah. on Lex. And greatest for some reason, that always gets put in like TV hell moments. It's just some men dancing with balloons. It's meant to, you know, look ridiculous. It's meant to look unpleasant yeah. on other people. Well, the thing about in, in actual fact, Malcolm and the balloon dancers, one of the bits of OTT that works the best well, if only because it is what it is. OTT is constantly trying to be something other than what it is. It's trying to be funny and it's not funny. It's trying to be anarchic and it's not anarchic. It's trying to be titillating and it's not titillating. It's trying to be sort of, you know, I don't know, exciting in zoo format. And it's not. It's just dull and really shambolic. And like they do a, a That's Life spoof, which is half as good as the one that Not the Nine O'Clock News did like five years previously. It's just grim. It's really, really tawdry and depressing. The reason they'll show the greatest show on legs thing is because it works as a standalone clip. So, yeah, if you're going to show a clip of OTT, it kind of evokes the sort of general sordid atmosphere that it has <laughs> in that it's sort of three ugly naked guys. <laughs> So it kind of evokes the general sort of sordidness and tawdriness that the show had going on for it. But it doesn't actually represent what the show was about. What the show was about, I think, was cataclysmic overreach. But what's kind of fascinating is the extent to which everybody seems to have escaped pretty much unscathed. Because Tarrant, of course, 15 years later, he's Mr. Millionaire. And it's not like he was exactly out of work in the meantime. Len just, I don't know, seemed to sort of brush this off and move on. I suppose one could ask whatever happened to John Gorman and Bob Cowdery's. Side note, I first saw Bob Cowdery's in 1977 when he came to play my grandma's square's jubilee party. Well, people forget he was the co-anchor of Surprise, Surprise. Well, he was, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I yeah. better think he so just retired. He just had enough. I think he did. I think he did. But the weird thing is, here you go, here's another little side note. You could have done an adult Tizwas that worked, and it would have been Tizwas. And I know this because I, I'm guessing sometime about 1981, went to see the live Tizwas tour. No, really? Oh, wow. I've never met anyone who actually went went to the live shows. I went to the live show at the Everyman, at the Liverpool Everyman, and it was an absolute hoot. And they just did all the regular Saturday morning stuff. They did the Flam Flinger, they did Compost Corner, they did Hoodie Elba, and it was brilliant. And the audience, I think, was probably 60, 40 grown-ups to kids. And, you know, everybody shouting, Compost Corner. And, you know, and adult tis was, could have worked if the just done tis was but for some reason it was like you know well it's half 10 so let's get some tits in you know so it's got this awful kind of 70s feeling to it because that's what i mean about how it became apparent that tis was was a show put together by 70s guys that was now trying to operate in it because i've got a theory that you know as it's all come out about just how hideous the sexual politics of bbc radio were in the 70s and just how much of it was all going on. my theory as to why the 70s seems to have been the grimmest decade for sexual harassment is 
what you had was a world run by 50s guys who'd come through the 60s. 50s attitudes being pursued with 60s abandon. Because in the 60s, there was a sort of a great liberation in terms of the expression of sexuality. But what there wasn't was any kind of examination of sexuality. So in the 70s, you've got 50s attitudes, you know, rampant misogyny being pursued with the kind of abandon and self-declared freedom of the 60s generation. And I think that's why the 70s seems to have been the grimmest time for that kind of misogyny, because in the 50s, you had rampant misogyny, but it was buttoned up, or at least it was all going on sort of, you know, behind closed doors. And then in the 60s, everybody's just like, yeah, let it all hang out, man, and just express yourself. So in the 70s, it's just like, oh, good, I'm going to give full reign to my rampant misogyny. And that's really, OTT feels more like sort of a hangover from that than anything sort of embracing this new world, because the idea that alternative comedy was going to be right on had not yet taken root. It was just known that it was going to be transgressive in some way. It was going to break the rules. But like I say, maybe if you were a 70s guy, the first thing you think when you think, how do I be transgressive is tits. Well, I've got two theories about why, I mean, aside from that whole horrendous, I mean, because I didn't see it at the time, I've seen bits since, and it's, it is not it's, nice. It's it is, it's, it's just grotesque. It's it really bleak. Is. But yeah. there's two more prosaic theories about why it just didn't work as a programme. And the first is, I've always held this, some things work as programmes because they work against their time slot. You know, Tiz was, yes. they were always pushing the edges, but it's on a Saturday morning, they move it to an unrestrained time slot, it doesn't work. Well, that reminds me of two things that, I'm not going to bracket with OTT, because I think they were better endeavours than, you know, yeah. maybe they're given credit for. And also, there's a very real possibility you may have been on one or both, but one of them was, <laughs> you know, there was Mel and Sue did Light Lunch, which was tremendous, because, you know, you didn't expect to see that in the middle of the day. That's yeah. why successful. Then it gets moved to a later slot, where it's Late Lunch. And they actually did the trailer about how much more unrestrained it's going to be. They're singing a song saying, it'll be rawr, and that sort of thing. And it just didn't work, because it nah. they didn't have restrictions to work against. So the other was so Graham Norton, people loved it, because it was this really wild show. On a Friday, at the end of the working week, you know, going so much further than everything else, they put him on every night. The yeah. last thing at night was V. Graham Norton. He visibly got tired, very, you know, exhausted, very quickly. And it I just bet. it just turned a bit unpleasant, really, in some respects. And I think, credit to him, he's kind of admitted that since. And basically, it's the same yeah. with OTT. And also, there's a thing about, it gives the air of, they just thought, if we stand in front of the cameras, something will happen. Which, you know, it will yeah. if you've got a studio audience of kids, because kids are unpredictable and rowdy and lively, especially on yeah. Saturday morning. Adults aren't going to do that. And, you know, the following year, they rebranded OTT as Saturday Stayback, which wasn't good. Yes. They at least had a format where it was, they were locked in a pub, and it was like, quick, 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 you're on now. And, you know, like Phil Cool doing five minutes of impression, yes. doesn't he? And at least they gave some structure to that. But OTT, it just felt like they were just not even winging it, just like waiting for somebody else to do something. No, you're right. It's agonising. But I think that's a very, very interesting point you've made there that to a certain extent creativity is born of butting up against your limitations. It's exactly what we were talking about bizarrely when we were talking about Britpop. Whereas you take those limitations away, it's Star Wars and the prequels, <laughs> isn't it? One of the reasons Tears Wars was so fascinating and so genuinely kind of anarchic is this feeling that they're doing shit that you're not supposed to do at 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning. Whereas when you do it at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, who gives a shit? You know what I mean? Who cares? Creativity comes when you smack into the walls. That's when you get creative. If there are no limits, then it's shapeless. Yeah, that's very, very astute. Well, I've got another analogy. Well can I 
kind of ties that in with what you were saying about how it ruined Tiss was as well, which is, you know, yes. you mentioned the live tour. Obviously, everyone knows the Bucket of Water song, but right from when Tiss was got yes. popular, you know, with John Gorman on board, they made a load of brilliant singles. People like Neil Innes were involved as well, where they were funny comedy records. They're actually still funny now. The one Lenny Henry did as Algernon Razzmatazz, Algernon wants you to say okay, is tr- it's one of my favourite records ever, because, you know, it's a proper <laughs> good song, as well as him going okay a lot. But when yes. they all leave, and, you know, you've got Gordon Astley, Fogwell Flack, Sally James and Den Hegarty do the Year of the Pie, credited to the pie and ears, and on the cover, it's got Fogwell Flack with some big Prince Charles ears on and a custard pie. <laughs> it's, it's a record I don't think I've listened to more than once. I own every Tiswell spin-off single, and <laughs> yeah, that's right at the end of the CD I made of them, and I usually turn that off when it gets to that. And you think with Den Hegarty involved, haven't been in darts, it'd be good as well, but no. No, it's a terrible, terrible shame, because Tiswell had another good few years to run on it. And what one senses, I think one senses a degree that, you know, we blew that. You know, I think they know they blew it. That, you know, they fucked up a good show in the name of making a bad show. I mean, how much longer it would have lasted anyway? Who's to say? It would have been better if it had had a chance to evolve into something else. If maybe the presenters had left one at a time and been replaced one at a time. So the rest of the A-team are still there to give long enough for the new guy to settle in. And then, you know, one of the other ones lives. You know, it could have evolved. It could have progressed. Instead of which, it got abandoned by the people who are making it to go off and make this hideous mutant cousin of itself and it gets handed over to essentially a bunch of ringers why would the audience go for that that's a big ask to make of an audience because ultimately it's a show is not really it's like when the company that made the bake-off sold out to channel four and didn't bother on melon search well you've still spent 25 million quid on a tent you know uh, um to what extent does your consist of a format or to what extent does it consist of particularly when it's a freewheel in a format it is was it consists of the personalities of the host so i don't think you can replace the entire presentation squad wholesale and expect it still to be the same show and I think you know the, the viewing public probably can curb with me on that one sometimes though even the most well-made and well-intentioned of television programs could just be an absolute mess but even so nobody was quite prepared for what writer and broadcaster Ben Baker had to say about a Christmas special of a certain game show so sometimes with this show I do see you get a lot of comments going well I've heard of that so it's not obscure and it's like shut up obviously because it's not about that and so yeah everyone knows bullseye everyone knows the jokes about bullseye etc so you know what it looks like in advance but the 1991 decided to add a dickensian theme (laughs) so suddenly everyone is not only dressed in sort of like full you know christmas carol kind of gear they're in character (laughs) jim bowen isn't but he is he's kind of ebenezer scrooge and he's sort of shouting at the audience and then it's a celebrity one because it's christmas and as it's 1990 bobby davro's there (laughs) he's bob cratchit bella Berg's his wife and Paul Shane. Paul Shane <laughs> is Tiny Tim. I've always loved about Paul Shane the fact that, you know, with most other people, the problem is that they get really famous through a fluke and then, you know, they're defined by one character, but they want to do more. But Paul Shane over the years seems to retreat more and more into his Paul Shane. Yeah, no, he's that's quite basically what he does in this. Is Paul Shane turned up to ten? Well, it is, uh, but because they're sort of in character, they do say who they are, obviously. But they are, they do come out as Bob Cratchit, etc. The others kind of drop it very quickly, but Paul Shane <laughs> sticks with yeah. it for far too long. And you know that sketch in Bang Bang It's Lisa Mortimer where Bob wants to go to Hollywood, and you see his picture that he sent off to Hollywood, and he says, "You've got biscuits around your mouth." He said, I was enjoying some biscuits. That's how he looks. He looks half dead with biscuits around his mouth. 
And it's, just, it's just this surreal thing because again they're still playing bullseye it's still the competition and obviously there's celebrity darts people it's Leighton Reese, Eric Bristow and Bob Anderson and they always get triple 20s because it's for charity and what have you but it's still bullseye aren't they supposed to be ghosts as well the dart players but they're also Father Christmas yeah, it's oh, it's brain melting, and I assume because like again, you assume all game shows are filmed in like fifty blocks, you know, fifty in a day sort of ones, and I imagine it's like, did they go right? We're filming loads of bullseye, and then this one, don't freak out, but we are gonna bring on Paul Shane as Tiny Tim, and you meant to just go, yeah, all right, yeah, 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 smart enough. It holds resonance for me certainly because I have a. A bullseye Christmas, I think anecdote's a strong word, experience. <laughs> I know what's coming up. Yeah, basically, my parents in the early 90s, uh, they owned a cafe, and they decided they didn't want to cook anymore quite reasonably, so booked us in a quite a fancy hotel over Christmas in Blackpool, at the Viking, which is on the front. It's a, it's a really, really nice hotel. And the Christmas Day Entertainment, because they, they have like a cabaret, they have like a entertainment's room. And the Christmas Day entertainment was Jim Bowen. And this is when Bullseye's still on telly. He's still a big name. So they must have paid a fortune for him to come. And he decided, you know, this is what I don't understand. He did a game of Bullseye, even though obviously he's a stand-up comedian and he could have just come out and done a stand-up set. I mean, it was a family audience, so some of it might not have gone over, but he decides to play Bullseye, so he gets people out of the audience for this. And the problem is, they've been drinking since 9am, and at this point, it's about half eight. So everyone he gets out of the audience is shit-faced. And not only can they not throw a dart in, a, in order, it's oh, like... God, oh, God almighty. If you ask them the question, can you find your ass with both hands, they'd have failed at that. So... Jim Bowen is getting increasingly more pissed off and he's not hiding it in any way. And again, he must have been paid. I know he must have lived quite near to Blackpool, but even so, Christmas Day night is there and he's just grumbling and he was he was effing and blind and stuff. And I was shell-shocked. I was a kid who only knew him from telly. You know, it's that thing when you see a telly person swearing. Or acting, you know, that kind of like... That's why Roger Melly was a, a thing, because the Viz team went backstage at local news and they saw newsreader swearing and stuff. And you do have that kind of disconnect between people from the telly, don't you? Like, maybe less now, or maybe because people are more reachable with Twitter and what have you, you know. It's much, much easier to tell people that you despise them and that sort of thing. But again, this was still quite a novelty. And it went so badly, the game did not end... Like, it just stopped. Well, it ended. It didn't, there was no conclusion to it. <laughs> it wasn't like that football match in the day-to-day that couldn't be stopped. <laughs> oh, God. The idea of it still going on, especially now Bowen's gone. It's like, and eventually the compare came on and went, ladies and gentlemen, Jim Bowen. Like, he must have been meant to be on for ages. Because the compare did some... He was very good, because, you know, you get a compare who can do the job, but he was filling <laughs> And Jim Bowen left in a huff and... That's that's why Bullseye and Christmas are a very complicated <laughs> topic for me. Well, Bullseye is just inherently hilarious, and not just for the cliched things about, you know, I am not a big fan of Peter Kay, but even I laughed at, you know, and then Bully goes past with the dictionary, even if he did say, what were that all about? You know, that's something that always puzzled me as a kid, but it goes beyond that. There's a sense with Bullseye that nobody involved with it at all, including Jim Bowen, at any point 
could give the remotest hint of a fuck about <laughs> the programme when how it looked on there. I mean, there was a brilliant thing about when they were repeated on Challenge. Our good friend and also fellow Looks and Familiar guest, Justin Lewis, did a thing <laughs> where I think he actually had the sound turned down. When they showed the prizes, he interpreted what they were literally on face value. <laughs> one was, there was a video hooked up to a TV showing Bullseye on it and he put <laughs> episode of Bullseye. <laughs> It was beyond. You know, it wasn't actually lazy. It wasn't shoddy. No. It wasn't not entertaining. It's just they did not care in a really good way. I don't think they ever said, shall we do another take of that? You know, (laughs) they just went, yeah, fine, move on. You know, (laughs) and I suppose that's the thing with game shows. As I said, they knock out loads in a session. So, yeah, this is, if it's still on YouTube, it was last time I looked, the 1990 Bullseye Christmas special. It's it's an experience. And why did they always, in those days, go overboard with the thing about trying to do the A Christmas Carol stylings, Mm. but without anyone ever evidently having so much as seen an adaptation of it, let alone (laughs) read the book. I mean, the one I always think of is completely forgotten now. There was an ITV sitcom around this time called Hallelujah with Thora Heard. Heard, Yeah, a Salvation Army major, which when you watch it now, I mean, you know, it's kind of a jolly, family-friendly sitcom. It's actually quite dark because it's all about her trying to, you know, secure a space for battle of wives and things like that. You know, it didn't shy away from the subject matter, but there's a Christmas one where they're hosting a party for disadvantaged kids who are not, you know, sweet angels who no one's understanding. They're vile and they're horrible. You know, that's (laughs) part of the joke. Mm. But she ends up in kind of, I can't remember quite how she gets it, in the fantasy sequence based, I say based on the Christmas carol, based on somebody having seen the words at Christmas carol and the quality (laughs) sweet tin. Why did they always do that? You could just go and watch a Christmas carol. I don't understand it. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has done a Christmas carol parody. Going live did one. (laughs) A Christmas Sarah. It fits fits really well. But obviously, if you say, you know what? Shall we do another A Christmas Carol? It's like, no, no, we have Scrooged. That's plenty. That's sufficient. Stop there. And also, sadly, we didn't get Paul Shane saying, God bless us all, baby, baby. Sadly, because it was five years too early. <laughs> but, you know, they could have had the Ghost of Christmas Future told him about it. Well, he was in the future because he was on uh, Urang, my lord, then. <laughs> so he was technically, he was, he was, he was historical man. <laughs> historical sitcom man. <laughs> That's what he was. Paul Shane through time. <laughs> oh, the Doctor Who production. I've never wanted to see a programme more than that. <laughs> and we'll be hearing a bit more from Ben later. But in the meantime, Joanne also recently appeared on my Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, It's Good Except It Sucks, talking about Blade 2, which isn't technically part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it was a film she'd never seen before, featuring a character she'd never seen before, but weirdly... A very familiar face. So visually, I thought it was really good and there were some really good scenes in it that I really liked and lots of things that I think remind me of elements of other horror films. Also, the mutant strain of vampires are very sort of, they're quite Nosferatu-ish because most of the vampires in this film just kind of look like normal people. Well, normal people, but infinitely more cool than normal people, I suppose. But the mutant strain are all quite kind of, I mean, Luke Goss in this sort of looks a bit like 
a kind of Uncle Fester with cheekbones. He's got sort of dark circles around his eyes and balls and, you know, he's sort of quite creepy looking, much more sort of Salem's Lot kind of vampires, I guess. And the way that the mutant strain of vampires move, they're often sort of, they kind of climb up walls like lizards and they're sort of hunched and they move in a really sort of unnatural, non-human sort of way. And that really reminded me of kind of the Nosferatu style of vampire. So there were loads of things in it, as I say, that I kind of picked up on that reminded me of other horror films. It feels almost like a sort of montage of bits and pieces in some ways, rather than a coherent whole, I think. Well, we've got to get the Luke Goss business out of the way, because this is really interesting for a number of reasons. The first thing is, I've mentioned on here a couple of times, Bros are technically part of Marvel continuity, because <laughs> there used to be a Marvel UK division who, you know, they ran reprints of Daredevil, Spider-Man, things like that, the Fantastic Four, with their own strips, commissioned, you know, the sort of people who worked on 2018, the reboot eagle with yeah. characters like Captain Britain, Death's Head, the Doctor Who strip was part of all that for a long time but they had at one point in the 80s because they used to do licensed tie-in things as well and bring them into you know their specific UK based continuity. There was a bross strip for a couple of issues of things which is later compiled into its own comic which is actually it was pretty good if you ignore the fact that they themselves are a bit ridiculous it's they sneak out after a gig to get burgers and get caught up in a kind of crime mystery thing and it was actually it was a good strip but that is baffling that you know he would be in this but I did think about the fact that he's in it and I was vaguely aware that he acts but had no idea and I found out he's got this very long career of appearing in a certain kind of film that plays with a certain type of audience you know what would have been the straight to video things in the old days where people got them out to have a laugh on a Friday night and he's you know done dozens and dozens of these films over the years where he always plays like either weird gangsters or a kind of humanoid monster apparently he was in the miniseries of Frankenstein side and played the monster and the critics raved over him what exactly but (laughs) how how did i not know this this is incredible i've got to find this immediately i've got to see it but i found an interview with him where he talks about how you know he had ambitions of being you know a great actor but he realized very early on he was very limited and he said to be honest i enjoy doing these kind of films and something along the lines of it's more gratifying if you're in a garage and you know a load of blokes up and say hey you're the fella out of mercenary for justice than just a long career of critic grudgingly saying yeah suppose he's all right if he has to be in it but he should stick to singing cat amongst the pigeons and i kind of (laughs) thought good for you he's found enjoyment in something that most people probably laugh at the idea of him doing it but he's found this niche and he seems to love doing it and he is not bad in this i think no absolutely good for him and you're right i think he is quite good in this as you say he doesn't have i wouldn't say it's a particularly testing role (laughs) no (laughs) he's heavily made up he doesn't have to say much and there isn't much to his character except sort of being evil and a bit kind of repulsive but i do think he's very good in it and he looks because he has got that kind of very sort of high cheekboned chiseled face and very sort of piercing eyes he's really well cast in it really it's odd for me as sort of someone who i mean i hated bross actually as a kid but they were my kind of first year at secondary school was when bross kind of hit the big time and became so and i went to an all-girls school so i was surrounded by brossettes and bross were everywhere so it was a bit i did have to kind of stop thinking of him as Luke Goss but then I imagine for a lot of people seeing that film that wouldn't have been a factor because they wouldn't really have been aware of Luke Goss especially in America they wouldn't necessarily have been aware of Ross particularly anyway or kind of realised who he was but yeah you're right I think he's quite good in this and what you've just said about the rest of his film career makes a lot of 
sense because I think for in a part like this, he's ideal, really. And I was really surprised by how good he was. I also was a bit startled when I saw um, Danny John Danny John here as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Tony Curran, who had not long before that been Leddy in this life, and it's basically yes. just being Leddy in it. Yeah, really odd. I was wondering when Danny John Jules appeared, who again, he's good in it. He's, he's, he plays the role pretty well. And I sort of thought, had they just seen him as the cat and thought, oh, he works with fangs. <laughs> <laughs> he works with slicked backed hair and fangs. He could be a vampire. I was half expecting there to be a bit at the end when the credits rolled, a voice to someone saying, Danny John Jules is currently appearing in Carmen Jones at the London Palladium, like they used to at the end of Red <laughs> And speaking of people more normally associated with sitcoms, here's something that you might not have heard. I recently joined George Grimwood, who very kindly hosts Looks Unfamiliar and It's Good Except It Sucks, on his podcast, The Sitcom Club USA, to talk about Friends. And we started off by talking about why judging comedy out of its original context isn't always as good an idea as you might think it is. In terms of the episode that you've chosen as well, is that one that has you have a personal kind of connection to, or is it one that kind of perhaps you saw it for the, and when you saw it the first time that was the moment that it clicked and it was like yep this is this is a solid one. Oh, i was already pretty much obsessed with it by then but it's one i remember having hysterics at and i still do now i think there's a good reason for that but the background to it was how times have changed genuinely people used to go round to one of my friends house on the friday night everyone to watch friends and you know these weren't you know there's this idea now that you see people putting about saying i've never watched an episode of those six twee nobody crying about how rich they are that's not what it is and I assure you none of my friends were rich and identifying with it none of them I would describe as twee in any way at all and it wasn't like a soap opera thing we just watched it because we laughed at it it was like a communal thing in the days when you know even then the internet was starting to happen in fact I remember being on the friends mailing list when I was still at university when they just started that's very weird to think of now but what did you have to do when you weren't at school stroke university or work you go out a couple of times a week you go to the cinema with all your friends or you watch them with all your friends reminds me of my parents talk about people used to go round to each other's houses to listen to radio shows that seems completely alien to me now but you know like Hancock's Half Hour or something or if the sport was on the radio everyone would pile round and it was kind of like that but I remember this one being especially funny just it seemed absolutely nothing misfired in it at all and I think the reason for that is it's almost entirely out of the flat the cafe doesn't feature at all and there's none of the other apartments or anything like that or Chandler's work it's a completely alien environment it reminded me of on the Seinfeld commentaries the writers always talk about when there's an episode that focuses on Elaine and Kramer they say oh we always love doing episodes with these two because they're friends of Jerry but they're not friends of each other and you've got a dynamic there where they don't actually care what happens to the other with regard to this plan that one of them has come up with and the only person that could turn to was either Elaine to Kramer or Kramer to Elaine and if they suffer because of you know Elaine's pursuit of usually it's something trivial like a sandwich or something then that's it there's no kind of moral grounding towards each other at all they bring out the worst in each other and I think this episode is a bit like that and it's completely out of the friend's comfort zone and so they have to do something different they have to have them playing football well in quote marks American football 
on Thanksgiving while Joey wants to get on with the eating with this weirdly competitive edge that doesn't often come out between Monica and Ross because it's founded on they were banned from playing football as children because they fell out over ownership of the Geller Cup which was played for in the Geller Bowl. You say that with pride. I think that's where it comes from. There's a real extra level of effort has had to go into it to create something out of this totally unfamiliar environment and I think it really really I was about to say ironically hits home but that's baseball isn't it that's not football so it really scores a touchdown there which doesn't sound as good and isn't a pun but there you go and if the Thanksgiving escapades of Rachel and company weren't entertainment enough here's another extra bit of fun Ben Baker recently in the run up to Christmas did a podcast called Ben Baker's Christmas Box in which he invited a number of guests on to talk about a television programme that represented Christmas to them in some way there were quite a few familiar names amongst the guests including Paul Abbott Mark Griffiths, Joanne Shepard, Gareth Hirons, Justin Lewis, Phil Catterall, and in this edition, me talking about the nativity module of the BBC Schools programme, Watch. What's on your Christmas box? Well, if you want to talk about excitement about Christmas, it doesn't get any more heightened for me than this, which was the BBC Schools programme, Watch, which is a kind of... I'd say it was a precursor to Zigzag, but, you know, a lot of people might not remember Zigzag now, but... Yeah, I don't know what that was a precursor to, so. But it was a kind of, like, magazine-y documentary strand where they do things, like, in a kind of comical way with animations so they explain how the postal system worked and things like that, or they do kind of term-long projects on David and Goliath and Robinson Crusoe and hmm. Robin Hood and things like that with songs, with animations, with makes that you could do yourself, you know, at home, like... Later. I mean, I was really excited when you got to watch TV in school anyway. Not for the usual <laughs> thing of, you know, we're watching telly in school instead of doing lessons, because I was fascinated by television itself from a very early age. How do they do that? How do they pick the photos of the caption slides? You know, how do mm. they generate them? That sort of thing. Uh, yeah, as I said, definitely a fascination. I remember like being annoyed at school and thinking, oh, that programme that's on that I look, saw in the TV Times looks really interesting, <laughs> and I'm stuck at school. Mm. Obviously, when you got to watch TV at school, it was, obviously, there's never been more of a, hooray! Oh, wait, no, we're still watching something boring about school. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> You know, you've got how we used to live as well, did you? Oh, yes. <laughs> da, 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 da. Sorry, that's the old ITV slash Channel 4 schools music. <laughs> uh, but that, again, that was exciting. I think, actually, there's something about telly not doing very much, which is eerie and exciting. Like when Channel 4 didn't have enough adverts to put on, so it just, like, froze, or, like, like a 4 <laughs> would bounce around the screen. It's like, I know telly's there, but it's not there. <laughs> and the schools thing's very much the same, because, obviously, big count downs and stuff it was like things will follow when we damn say they're gonna follow. and they weren't really in the schedules either if you looked in radio times it read like really small text hmm. and it just said the name of the program not what happened in them like the way yeah. the open university was at the other end of the day it's not quite that that you know tv wasn't supposed to be on or something was on but it was like it was treated as though it was its own separate universe yeah and it was like you were allowed into it. And that's why it was really weird when programmes like Watch and You and Me and Look and Read, you were allowed to watch at home if you were off school. Yeah. And it felt like cheating on school almost. Yeah, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. Because again, it was, there wasn't telly. It's like 
television didn't get out of bed before like midday up to the 80s until breakfast TV really becomes a thing. It's like play school would be the first thing on BBC Two at 11 and then it'd probably go off air again for another three hours. <laughs> well, a bit like BBC Two, that's it for this collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar. Don't forget you can find the full versions of all of these shows along with the full versions of Ben Baker's Christmas Box and the sitcom Club USA at timworthington.org. While you're there, why not help support Looks Unfamiliar by buying one of my books or alternately, if you're just feeling generous, you can also buy me a coffee. Anyway, enjoy. Well, just you wait until we see how excited everyone gets about Paul Shane Infinity Ball. So picture the scene. Paul Shane opens his windows, shouts down at Jeffrey Holland. You there, boy, what day is it? It's, it's Christmas point Day. point history Ted. all at once. He goes, Spike, fetch me the biggest turkey in the shop. And Jeffrey Holland pulls that face and then, I don't know, falls into a swimming pool. It just <laughs> works. <laughs> I can't top that. <laughs> top of the box, the complete guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes, from the theme to the Six Wives, Henry the Eighth, to Awesome Doom by Ed the Duck. More details at TimWorthington.org. So I remember you telling me how excited you were about there being a Shang-Chi movie some considerable time ago. I have to say I'm not familiar with the character myself. So obviously the next question is, how much did you know about Shang-Chi and his little corner of Marvel's continuity before you saw this? Well, quite a lot, but in a different way, it seems, a lot of people reviewing this, which I'll come back to in a second. But the most important thing is that when I first mentioned to you that I was excited about this, which, you know, wasn't that long ago, really, because I was thinking about this has been a very quickly made movie and in fact it's mentioned as new news in an edition of Looks Unfamiliar with Gary Bainbridge it's also been on It's Good Except It Sucks a couple of times where we mention with incredulity that it's going to be quote a Shang-Chi film that's what I always called him it's kind of my real accent slipping out a bit you know Shang-Chi but it is officially Shang-Chi according to the film and I knew quite a lot about him 